Hi, I'm David Manti, and welcome to a new episode of the Today in Manufacturing podcast. With me today are Jeff Franke and Anna Wells. We each have about 15 years covering the industry. Every week, we cover the five biggest stories in manufacturing and the implications they have on the industry going forward. Before we get started, please make sure to like, subscribe, and share the podcast. You could also help us out a lot by leaving a positive review on whatever platform you use. Finally, if you want to reach the podcast, you can get any of us at Jeff, David, or Anna at IEN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. Jeff, how are you doing today? Pretty good, man. How about you? I'm feeling good about it because we're doing a lunch and they're actually going to wait for us. You've, you've gotten past the fact that both of our softball games got rained out this I'm, week. You're, you're over it? That. You're no. over it? No. No, I have two stress relievers per week. Neither of those worked. <laughs> I'm on tilt. Anna, how are you doing this week? <laughs> Do you think they will wait for us? I, I feel like maybe they're trying to tell us something when they continually schedule things during the podcast. Like, oh, well, sorry, yeah. Jeff, Anna, and Big Timber. Yeah. What time? See yeah. you next week. What time was it again that you guys do that every week for 30 weeks in a oh, row? Oh, exact same time as this, the barbecue. This does look turns pretty, out. like, they're going to some pretty great lengths out there. This could take a while. So yeah. we might, the timing might We're be like perfect. like sl- slow roasting okay. a pig out there? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. We're hoping for slow coals. Slow coals. <laughs> no, but I mean, hey, that's cool that we can, uh, you know, first cookout since we're back in the office. So yeah. Super excited. All right, let's jump into our first story this week. Air Force funds hypersonic aircraft startup. Hermes is developing the world's fastest reusable aircraft. If everything goes according to plan, it will hit Mach 5 or five times the speed of sound. This week, Hermes announced a $60 million agreement with the U.S. Air Force to test its first aircraft. They call it the Quarter Horse, and it's the first of many autonomous high-speed aircraft. Under the deal, Hermes would have three years to develop, build, and test a concept aircraft, which would use a turbine-based combined cycle engine based on GE's J85 turbojet engine. The company has an ambitious plan to validate its technology at much lower costs than would ordinarily be expected for this type of flight system. The company says the world's fastest reusable aircraft could unlock trillions in additional economic growth every year. At some 3,000 miles per hour, the aircraft will cut the trip from New York to London from seven hours down to 90 minutes. Jeff, we're talking about hypersonic vehicles again, and I'm enjoying it. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it's a really cool premise. Obviously, when we're talking about limiting flight times, I think everybody can get behind that. It's a cool technology, too. We're seeing a lot of different applications for this hypersonic platform. Mm-hmm. We always talked about it for missiles and weapons and, and defense applications, but here we're, we're looking at getting people uh, where they need to be a lot quicker. Where I get skeptical, though, is we're talking about a passenger plane here. Mm-hmm. And when you start putting that many more, I mean, that much more weight, on the vehicle itself, it just seems like this is going to be really, really challenging in terms of how many people can actually get on the plane and still maintain that type of speed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the it's also interesting timing to me because right now folks have gotten real comfortable with not traveling. Mm-hmm. When you look at business travel in particular, obviously we still want to go and see people, see our loved ones, and things like that. But I ran into an interesting article actually on Investopedia.com, and they looked at airline travel mm-hmm. and. I always look at it, most of the airline travel that I take or most of the flights I take is for work. But according to this, um, business travelers only account for 12% of actual passenger totals. Mm-hmm. But because they're less scrupulous about when they're going and, and how much they're paying, they actually account for 75% Whoa. of profits. Okay. So they're Whoa. paying more. 
Yeah. So, and then I found another interesting thing here about 60% of revenues come from consumers on airlines, buying tickets, checking bags, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Only 60%, though. The other 40% actually comes from like frequent flyer deals with credit card companies. Oh, okay. So, when we look at these sort of revenue dynamics, a little bit of some different things going on societally, you know, how important then does does a supersonic passenger jet become? Is now hypersonic? The time. Yeah, no, I think it becomes I think it becomes more important just because as we're becoming a like sort of a just in time culture, you know, people are more and more careful with their time, and maybe if they travel less, they'll still travel. If it's not going to take seven hours, it'll take ninety minutes. What do you think, Anna? Mm, I don't know. I also think we have a problem culturally with like getting excited about the newest glittery objects that we see. <laughs> but this one's really <laughs> shiny. But it's so fast. Yeah. I know. But it's so fast. I don't know. This company has been around since 2018 only. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I believe the prospect of super, um, you know, fast air travel is very exciting as well. And the military could find a solid case for it, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, that's sort of impervious to these consumer trends. So I get that. But this jet doesn't yet exist, and we're spending $60 million in defense dollars to build it on a timeline of three years um, to build and test three prototypes. Doesn't that seem tight to you? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, yeah. And then and they say that it's going to be for a dramatically lower cost um, by, I think they're reusing, like, the propulsion systems. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, what happens when they don't? Like, we have this project that drags on and on, cost balloon. Like, I don't want to be a wet blanket here, but I feel like Jeff has already been a wet blanket, so I'm just going to throw another yeah, yeah. super wet Two blanket. wet blanket. It's, what I, it's Double, what I had. It's so heavy. <laughs> but, I, like, we've seen a lot of really ambitious, like, defense-driven projects or government agency projects, I should say, very recently, like, sort of tank. Like, I'm thinking about Air Force One going way over budget, way over mm-hmm. timeline. The Webb Telescope the new NASA spacesuits that are like going to cost a billion dollars and they're like two years behind schedule. Like this is what happens to these projects. So I don't know. I just, sometimes I see this stuff and it feels like, I know they use the word ambitious in the Mm -hmm. article, but it feels optimistic. Yeah, It doesn't make me feel more confident knowing that this is a startup that's only three years old. I don't know if this happens. I don't know. But a lot of those points are what I like about it. You know, I love hypersonics in general, but both of the guys that started this are former SpaceX and Blue Origin engineers, so they have a good pedigree. And if anyone knows that the money's right with the government, SpaceX knows how to use government money to get a private endeavor off the ground. Um, and to your point about Air Force One, uh, Hermes actually signed a contract to build a hypersonic Air Force One, and the demonstrator aircraft was supposed to be in five years with an actual plane in 10 so maybe part of that deal played into this, mm-hmm. where the technology for this would actually expedite an Air Force One that was a hypersonic. Were you guys a little surprised, though, just with the whole tone of the Biden administration, that they're giving a lot of money to a project that is a fossil fuel burner? Yeah. I mean, this thing uses liquid um, hydrogen. It's not environmentally friendly. Mm-hmm. And if it's going this fast, you'd think it's going to even have more emissions. More no, it's probably odd coming from me to bring the environmental factor up, but I thought that was also just kind of interesting because we do see a lot of stuff going on right now with electric planes. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. no, it's uh, I was also interested, you know, last uh, a few weeks ago, we talked about Arian Supersonic, uh, which was a Boeing backed company that had like supposedly the 11 billion dollar sales log. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they just put a number on their sales log, yeah. but I think 
that shows that you could have a company like a Boeing backing you and still fail when it's the Air Force. I feel better about the stability, I guess. Um, Why, though? I don't know. Because uh, you want these guys to be the bad news bears. Because <laughs> yeah, wow. No, uh, the Air Force. That's their new uh, recruiting slogan. Yeah, we're like the bad news bears. No, I meant the Hermes, but oh. like you know, you are like looking for an exciting rags to riches success story. Because I, I know that. I mean, that, I don't know how nice. many. I, I don't know how many rags these guys are coming from. Like uh, <laughs> former SpaceX and Blue Origin engineers. Destitute when Destitute. they launched their hypersonic These guys are startup. just driving Infinities and they want yeah. <laughs> they want to drive Lambos and we're gonna get them there. Yeah, that's right. Um, but I just uh when it comes to a startup, you look at the pedigree kind of like backing it, and I mean uh, pedigree. Mm. No, it doesn't wow. get me there. I don't know. I just like I, I will be impressed if it happens in three years and on budget, but I mean if of all the things. I don't the three year timeline. That sounds like I mean, not just ambitious. I don't think that's going to happen. Agree. But uh, I think, you know, um, I don't think I mean, maybe this becomes the railgun project. Right. Maybe in three years uh, when this podcast is still going, of course, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we're talking about how it gets shelved in the Indiana Jones warehouse right next to the railgun. But wait a second. Maybe not. Are you more bullish on this stupid plane than our podcast? Is that what just happened? (laughs) No, I think that was a that was an interpretation of my tone. Uh, <laughs> oh no! Uh, this is the most heated it's ever come, become in the studio. Right, right. It's weird because only the, the video guys on just, this side of my head is like standing. Like video I'm guys st- are just eating popcorn and drinking beer over there. They're just enjoying the show. Our next story <laughs> <laughs> is about protesters blocking Raytheon plant entrances. Activists blocked the entrance to a Raytheon plant in Rhode Island on Thursday morning. They're protesting what they call the company's role in, quote, killing civilians and other human rights abuses. The group is called the Fang Collective, and they chained themselves to two vehicles next to the guard shack at 6 a.m., including one guy that was chained to a cinder block in a trunk. Some of the protesters were arrested. Firefighters had to cut them free because they were chained to cinder blocks in a trunk. Raytheon's missiles and defense plant focuses on sea power capability, according to its website. That's sensors, combat management systems, radar, and sonar. About 1,000 people work at the plant. In a statement, the company said, We respect the right to lawful and peaceful protest. Fang called Raytheon's response titillating. (laughs) And uh, uh, following this... I found very interesting. It, definitely, yeah. So the Fang Collective um, <clears throat> has established a campaign that attempts to pressure companies to end their agreements with ICE. Mm-hmm. Um, they started in 2018 with an attempt to blockade a prison in Dartmouth, Mass., that it said was collaborating with ICE by holding detainees. Mm-hmm. This was followed by other actions in the area, kind of in the northeast part of the country, um, over the past few years. Their goal is to apply pressure locally, but ultimately they want ICE to be abolished. Mm-hmm. So at issue for the protesters, it appears is Raytheon's like passive barrier fencing that they sell sensors, cameras, command and control systems that they sell to the U S borders. Mm-hmm. Um, will we see more of these kinds of demonstrations? I mean, I'm not here to speak to, you know, their cause or, or Raytheon's at all. I do think that these public companies don't have a lot of 
place to hide when it comes mm-hmm. to like some of their more controversial applications. Um, we live in a society that seems to be increasingly intense and divisive um, as it comes to our ideological differences. So I don't know whether it's companies, um, you know, that they work with these companies, climate policies, the way they treat their employees. I think it seems like they're being called out more and more. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I don't know if you guys feel the same way that it just seems like we're seeing kind of more of this stuff where people are, are taking these companies to task. I think, I think we're closer to it. I think part of it, I think, you know, attack, attacking corporations for uh, some of the work they do is an age old practice. True. Yeah. Um, so well, I think we, we live in an age where everything is available by typing something into the box, right? Mm-hmm. We yeah. go to Google and we can figure everything out. And I think that's what is really the antithesis of a lot of these protests and a lot of people speaking out. They just want more transparency and they mm-hmm. want more accountability. Mm-hmm. And I think that ultimately is what Fang and some of these other groups are looking for. But I think part of the mm-hmm. issue, and, and this is a quote from a, from a site that was covering it called truthout.org. This is from one of the it's demonstrators. Yeah. Yeah. But this is one of the demonstrators was quoted as saying, Raytheon profits from the killing of civilians, families, and children in Palestine, Yemen, and elsewhere. We can't sit idly by while Raytheon engineers create new and more destructive ways of killing innocent people. That's a hardcore accusation. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. Now, when you say things like that, the focus does not go on what is Raytheon doing? Do they need to be more transparent and more accountable with their products and where they're going and what they're doing? What it comes is, man, these guys called Fang are accusing this defense contractor of killing innocent people without any proof. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. it's just as easy to dismiss that type of, uh, even though they're saying that to get more notoriety and get more attention and it obviously attracts people to their cause potentially. But yeah. in terms of actually instituting change, our conversation yeah. that that doesn't work. You think yeah. it's too extreme? It's it, because it's nope. e- yeah, because it sounds extreme, and therefore it's easy to ignore. Whereas if they came out and said, "Look, we're frustrated with what's going on, and we want these guys to talk more openly about how these products are being used," mm-hmm. we talk about others in different situations, whether it's gun manufacturers, even food companies mm-hmm. wanting to be more transparent about where ingredients come from. That's a tactic that can be effective. Mm-hmm. And I understand where some of those concerns come from. But when you say stuff like this, it just yeah. gets lost. The no, cause gets lost. I completely agree. And I, uh, I, I'm sorry, I don't completely agree. I think that uh, if they do have a calm, well-spoken manner, it doesn't make the news sometimes. And uh, sometimes you have to, uh, you have to make a big deal out of it to get the conversation going. You know, they retweeted, retweeted a comment that said, we are simply past the point of calling senators and writing emails. Because, you know, if they called senators and wrote emails, we're not talking about it today. Uh, so, I mean, but maybe there is a better a better way of doing it. Well, this fan group is pretty interesting. I mean, they started out, it was the fight against natural gas. They're an anti-fracking organization. And hmm. they've since, since gone down this road of being very much defund the police Mm-hmm. Um, so there's some other rhetoric on their site that is a little bit past the point of, like I said, I think it hurts their message. Yeah. Even though they may have a valid argument and a valid point, when you start talking in more extreme measures like that, and you're saying they have to do that, yeah. I'm saying it's easier to blow them off. Whereas if you have a more articulate, intelligent argument yeah, and a more business one, I mean, at the end of the day, Raytheon's a business. Oh, True. No, you're right. Like, uh, this is a way to get a little bit of press now and get blown off yeah. as, uh, you know, angry millennials. Um, but 
So one thing I was thinking about, Anna, and kind of to your point about uh, companies facing more and more action like this, mm-hmm. is that according to the protesters, they shut down the plant for five hours. Yeah. And I mean, I got to imagine that for Raytheon to be down for five hours, that is a lot. That's that's a lot going to cost them quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure it was very expensive. Um, I'm sure it got, you know, Raytheon's attention. But, you know, to Jeff's point, like, it's not going to probably change anything that Raytheon's doing. Um, I. I can I can see your point, but like I also kind of agree with David and the and the fact that like if people start to talk about it, if it makes the news and people are talking about it, like where change is taking place, I think right now is at the shareholder level. Mm-hmm. So if they can oh, yeah. encourage someone to take a position or generate some buzz there, where people start to push back from from a shareholder standpoint, then maybe you you make some you know changes there, but. But the story is them protesting, right? Mm-hmm. No problem with the protest. No problem with the action. If you want to chain yourself to a cinder block and go into a into I'm a chained to a cinder block right now. Yeah, no, it's nonviolent, so I don't have a problem mm-hmm. with it. But then when they talk to you about why you're chained there, you can say, "Well, I disagree with David Manti, and I think he needs to change his ways." Yeah. When it comes to hypersonic planes. I'm not leaving the studio. I'm not leaving. I think that my uh, it's nego- a stupid plan, according to Anna. I don't. I got another block for you. I'll chain you to. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> um. No, but uh, we, talking about it uh, from an operational standpoint, too, before we get out of here, is that I bet this makes Raytheon and other companies consider, you know, having just, you know, a security stand out there and maybe beef up security a little bit as well. True. All right. Our next story this week. VW halts sales on vehicles that can unexpectedly shut down. Volkswagen has asked dealerships to stop selling the Taos. The company's new subcompact SUV. The Taos. The Taos. <laughs> what do you drive? I drive a Taos. <laughs> that is just so not cool. I'm calling it Taos. <laughs> Taos. Uh, reports have surfaced of engines unexpectedly shutting down when the car comes to a stop. No injuries have been reported. VW says that it's unaware of any in- injuries stemming from the problem. In the first half of the year, VW sold more vehicles than it had since 1973. So... VW's having a great year. And Anna, this just sounds like another thing in a long list of recalls that we've heard about this year. That's true. But if you really want a Volkswagen SUV or crossover ASAP, then you can look to their variety of other options as VW is amassing a great big line of them to the point where they're kind of getting teased about how similar the new ones are beginning to look to each other. Like, so for example, the ID4 electric SUV is now facing competition from VW's ID5 electric SUV, which is coming out soon, which is basically the exact same vehicle with what's described as a sleeker roof. It's got Mm. everything else the same. Um, So I don't know, for, for a gas powered vehicle, the Taos competes with like the Tiguan, the Atlas, Reports suggest VW's testing a golf crossover to replace the traditional golf. Like it just, it never ends. So I don't know. I, I kind of wonder what the end game is here when there's so much variety because it cuts into the profit margins for these um, automakers. You know, it lowers the number of um, vehicles sold per, per model. Mm-hmm. Um, and VW is not alone. If you put a lineup of like the Nissan Rogue, the Nissan Murano, the Nissan Pathfinder, like, uh, dare me to tell those apart. I mean, and yeah. I drive a Pathfinder. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know. For what it's worth, like, in 2019, according to the Wall Street Journal, there were 96 SUV and crossover models. 
Wow. And they cited a report predicting that that would rise to 149 by 2023. And right now we have more appetite for vehicles than are available to us, but that's not going to last forever. Mm. And when it slows, I think there could be a lot of SUVs like sitting around. So I guess my point is if you're a Taos driver, just pick a different one. They're not that different. There's yeah. lots of them. No, uh, Jeff, when I looked at uh, a photo of uh, a Taos up close and personal, it does look like just every other SUV out there. Not a lot of uh, design and going into that. Well, and if you still really want one, you can get the front-wheel drive version. True. You just can't get the all-wheel drive. So mm-hmm. um, it is – apparently a lot of people agree with you, mm-hmm. too, on, on this one because according to um, carsalesdatabase.com, it's the 24th um, leading sale seller in this category. Okay. Small crossover CV. <laughs> so, yeah, it's There's it's a few a, others. That's yeah. why so many – Huge um, <laughs> um, in demand right now. They didn't release numbers on how many were affected because it was four. well i mean the other thing is i was when i read this i'm like okay so you work at vw you're in quality control or or communications and you get called in on monday like we got a problem Mm -hmm. and you're thinking oh man more diesel gate stuff and they're Mm -hmm. like no we have this engine problem were you just automatically relieved like oh it's it's like a normal thing it's like an (laughs) engine okay we can deal with engines it's not like a huge global scandal that will cost us tens of billions of dollars (laughs) right they're just like what document leaked now and what's a Taos? No. Yeah. Just, we, that's ours? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think, uh, I mean, there's something to that. I mean, they've had their share of scandals. And to come to come in to work for this one and just be like, oh, they're just shutting down? Yeah. <laughs> just <laughs> stopping. Not, okay. They're not blowing up? Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's just going to be another software update. It's going to be that simple. Um, I thought it was interesting. Last year, there were 886 recalls that affected nearly 55 million cars in the U.S. I mean, there's only 276 million cars registered in the U.S. So that's like nearly 20% of all vehicles were affect, were hit by a recall last year. Um, and I just found that to be interesting. Like, is that sort of, do you expect that now when you buy a new car that uh, there's going to be some sort of recall? Uh, and are you almost comforted by the fact that you hope the manufacturer is ahead of it, you know, t- you know being... Uh, more active against them, I guess. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like uh, with the amount of electronic systems and, and high tech digital stuff that's in there, there's just more stuff to break. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense that this stuff is happening more frequently. Um, and like you said, if I get a recall notice and, you know, they're on the spot, because after living through this like Takata drama that has been dragging on and on and on and knowing that there's still vehicles that should be recalled that haven't been. Yeah, that are still exploding. Like Airbag. that's terrifying. So mm-hmm. I mean, any time that you can get it something fixed and you know it's taken care of, I think that, like you said, that's sort of a comfort. But yeah, I don't think we st- we are we're buying stuff waiting for it to break. <laughs> yeah, but it has happened more prominently. The lowest year in the last twenty years there was two thousand six, and there was only fourteen million vehicles recalled that year. So I mean, it's more than tripled. I mean, it's a. I don't know, a little misleading just because some of that stuff isn't a huge like safety concern. Mm-hmm. It's more yeah. like a best practice, like, hey, we should really fix this. Yeah. Which they seem to act on more quickly than the really uh, dangerous yeah. things. But um, yeah, still a lot. Yeah. All right. Our next most popular story this week, a factory raises wages to combat a labor shortage. Custom Rubber Core is an Ohio rubber parts factory. The company recently received an $879,000 Paycheck Protection Program loan. President Charlie Braun used the money for an interesting experiment. He raised wages in an effort to help solve staffing problems. For example, 
The company struggles to find machine operator positions, which is a pretty universal problem in the industry. Braun raised the starting hourly pay $4.55 per hour to $18.25 per hour. It's up to $19 per hour if you're willing to work the night shift. Since January, the company has added 33 new employees and profit has nearly doubled for the same period during a good year, up to 6% from the usual three. Labor costs are now 17% of sales, up about 5%, but when orders surged 50% this year, the extra labor helped Braun keep up. Employees also received their highest profit-sharing payout in nearly 10 years. The president also stressed the importance of company culture and safety, so he's looking at investing in automation and other equipment to make jobs easier. And Jeff, when I read that part about, oh, no, no, we're going to pay you, but we're also going to get more automation equipment to make it easier for you, I'm like, how much of that is just a temporary stopgap until there's more automation on the floor and filling some of those problems? Um, it does depend on the facility, obviously, mm-hmm. but I think the way I read it was more just the automation is going to be efficiency focused and getting more product out the door more quickly and, and things like that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm not the wet blanket all the time, guys. <laughs> yeah. Not every time. Yeah. Uh, just most of the time. <laughs> just nine out of ten. Um, what I thought was interesting was when um, when uh, the president of the company here was talking about longer term mm-hmm. and having mm-hmm. concerns about what if there is a sales and down, sales downturn and what are those increased wages would mean and also mm-hmm. <clears throat> bringing people in at a wage that is pretty close or the same mm-hmm. or maybe even more than some folks have been there for a little bit. Right. So that, that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. One of the things I was thinking about too, because right now we see all of these different studies and um, – you know, hiring best practices when it comes to like the millennial generation specifically. And one of the things they talk about is getting them more involved in the company and taking ownership mm-hmm. of what they're doing. So as a tactic, do you think, let's just say, for instance, in a couple of years, this company starts having some issues, mm-hmm. having some problems, and he's like, I got to cut wages. Mm-hmm. Do you think him going to these folks and just being super transparent with what the company has done, what's happening, how it's going, Hey, I brought you in to start at a higher wage, but now this is going on. This is our company. We're in this together. Yeah. Does that help ease that at all? Or is I th- that I the only reason I'm gonna anecdotally say I think so is because we've been part of a company that had to do universal universal five percent cuts so everyone could stay employed. But we could wear jeans on Friday. So it has no to be in the context of like a broader economic downturn. They can't be able to walk out the oh, door absolutely. and find another job immediately. I think that was the difference. Yeah. No, it's uh, I completely agree. And actually, Anna, how big of a problem do you think that wage compression is going to be? You know, some of these long tenured employees that now know that they're making the same, maybe less than some of the new hires. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, of course, compression is going to be a challenge. I think that that has to be a part of your cost calculation here is mm-hmm. trying to iron some of that stuff out, um, which obviously can make that number go up um, pretty quick when you're talking about adding wage at every level. But I thought this was an interesting test case because we're seeing wages rise across the nation as companies are competing for labor. We ran a story a few months back um, based on a report that kind of warned manufacturers that soon they would be competing for labor with industries that they hadn't in the past like retail, like service industry, you know, restaurants, things like that. And that shift is actually happening very quickly. Like last week it was reported that the average wage for a grocery or restaurant worker had hit $15 for the first time. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately for manufacturers, 
this is swiftly encroaching upon their compensation standards. And this labor shortage we're seeing now is not exactly a storm that you can just put your head down and ride out, I don't think. Right. Um, you know, one thing that's been mentioned that I think is important is that manufacturers tend to be in a position to offer better benefits than um, retail or some of those other sectors. So healthcare, profit sharing, paid time off, things like that. So obviously this company, Rubber, Custom Rubber, mm -hmm. I think they're called. Um, yeah, CRC. They had the benefit of some PPP cash to work with. Mm -hmm. But if you don't, like, try promoting some of these other benefits, I think, front and center when you're posting these jobs. The other big problem that's facing manufacturers, I think, is not just a cash problem, but it's a flexibility problem. Um, everybody wants to work from home these days. We kind of got a taste for it with the pandemic. And um, you can't exactly remotely run a production line or yeah. remotely fix a machine. Yeah, run a machine. Right. Yeah. So I think the focus needs to be on the money and the benefits. I don't see a way around it. You just have to hope that like this company, Custom Rubber, you're making up some significant ground by not having to turn away business because you can't staff it, right? I mean, we saw this week Tyson say that they're doing yep. six, what, five days worth of work in six, six days. Yeah, That's a profit vacuum. I mm -hmm. mean, if if other companies are are facing likewise challenges on, on dealing with this pent-up demand, then they need these workers more than they need that, I don't know, that cash buffer, I think. I think they need to start paying. That's just my opinion. I think it says something that this was one of our top stories this week, and I'm hoping that it's more people who want to see if it worked mm -hmm. and less people clicking in disbelief. So to your point, though, David, they're investing in automation, mm -hmm. having trouble finding workers. What does this do for manufacturing long-term if – because from a cost perspective, simply a bottom line perspective, they cannot afford to pay people at the same level of some of these competing industries. Mm -hmm. Therefore, they invest more in automation. Mm -hmm. Fewer workers getting more stuff out the door. Yeah. What does that mean for U.S. manufacturing? Is that a win because they're that much more efficient based on the technology that they've implemented into their facility? Or right. are, is the U.S. at a competitive disadvantage then because we have fewer people on the floor making stuff. I think that's a win if the fewer workers in the facility are making a more livable wage. You know, if you have if you have fewer workers in a pre more premium position and they're doing better, I guess I think that would be more advantageous, but Anna, maybe you disagree. No, I mean, I think it's a really great question. Mm -hmm. Um I don't think that I mean cuz that is happening now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It is like automation yeah. investments we know are being driven up by this worker shortage by this pandemic. Um, there's a lot of manufacturers that are small and custom shops. It's not, I don't think it, when people think automation, they think like robots running these entire production lines. That's not reality for most right. of the manufacturers that operate here. So yeah. I, I do think that it will encroach upon some of the existing jobs, but I don't think all of them. Um, but I don't know. I, yeah. I, I, yeah. You raise a good point. I don't know what the answer is. As of July 2021, the average machine operator salary was $28,400 a year, or about $1,365 an hour. Entry level drops that to $23,000 a year, or about $11 per hour. And it tops out at about $34K on the high end. At $1,825, a yearly salary would be more than $35,000 a year. Nineteen would put it over $37,000 a year. So that's putting them way above averages. And I think that would, you know, that's not just a more competitive wage locally, but that makes somebody move there, you know, for a job, possibly. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. And it becomes, I think the best thing that's going to come out of this is 
You've got these areas that potentially did try to capitalize on a lower cost labor force. They have to pay them folks now. And it's not just manufacturing. It's mm -hmm. also the service industries. I think that's a huge benefit because we're a little bit spoiled over here in the way we look at being a bartender, being a waitress, something like that. You go to some, like I was over in Europe a couple of years ago in Ireland, and you know what? Those folks were ecstatic. Mm -hmm. They loved those jobs, and they meant a lot to them because they could support their family. They could do things that they needed to do. So it'll be interesting if there is a similar sort of dynamic that comes into play now. One thing that I also found very interesting uh, was that Braun admitted that he leaned on the recession to keep wages down. And he said that the manufacturing industry is to blame part in part for fueling the labor shortage by keeping wages down. Hmm. And I just thought that was very powerful that he came out and said that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right. Our most popular story on the website this week, LA deputies shot in ambush Sue ghost gun kit maker. A pair of Los Angeles County Sheriff's deputies were badly wounded in an ambush shooting last year. On Monday, the deputies sued Nevada-based Polymer 80 for making the parts for a ghost gun used in the attack. The lawsuit says Polymer 80 negligently and unlawfully sold an untraceable home-assembled gun kit that resembled or that resulted in the September attack. It was the latest effort to deal with the proliferation of ghost guns, which are put together from commercial kits or parts bought online. The ATF doesn't consider uncompleted kits to be firearms, so buyers don't have to undergo the usual background checks, and in most states, the guns aren't required to have serial numbers. Anna, it seems like ghost guns are becoming more of a problem every day. Yeah, not into it. No. Oh. <laughs> what, are you going to jump in pro-ghost gun? <laughs> well, there's obviously a lot of oh, pro-ghost yeah. gun people because they're... Selling them. Agreed. Agreed. Sorry, I meant just specifically. You just you. meant specifically to me. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I know that you've Our been... audience doesn't know me as well as you do. Well, do, I mean, do I you, do you need to wet, take a time out here? It's like it a wet blanket like, theme. There's a lot of tension between you two. Do you just do you need a break? Uh, you maybe okay? more water. No. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, um, Anna, go ahead. So under the 2005 Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act, um, gun manufacturers cannot be held liable for the use of their products in a crime. However, gun ma manufacturers can still be held liable for and sued for a range of things, including negligence, breach mm -hmm. of contract, um, defects, that kind of thing, um, marketing. In this case, the suit says that defendants knew and could foresee but consciously disregarded the risk that they were creating and contributing to a direct and secondary market for illegal, unserialized, and untraceable guns. So that suggests that they're going the way of the negligence argument. Mm -hmm. um, I think Remington was sued based on marketing practices, that kind of stuff. Um, so there's a little, kind of little holes in this um, approach. I know people always traditionally think that gun manufacturers are shielded from a lot of this litigation. Well, lawsuits were one of the reasons that Remington filed for bankruptcy twice since 2018. Mm -hmm. um, and that suit hasn't even been settled yet. Uh, so I think gun safety advocates and crime victims are going to go after them in any way that they can. Mm -hmm. um, this law firm that's suing the ghost gun maker um, has sued other ghost gun makers. Correct. Uh, so, um, I think it's just a, an issue of trying to chip away at these companies mm -hmm. and seizing on these situations, you know, f even though they're horrible, um, but to try to chip away at their access to the industry. I don't know. Jeff, I saw a lot of comments about how many other laws did he break? This guy's going to get in, you know, he's a criminal, so he's going to get a gun no matter what. However, because 
this particular, the shooter was a convicted felon. You know, he didn't have access to tradition. Like, you know, he couldn't buy a gun, you know, which I think kind of shows the danger with some of these ghost gun kits is that I think it's making it easier to get their hands on an unregistered firearm. So, you know, this technology a little bit better than I do. I mean, mm-hmm. this is not all 3D printed stuff, but it is using a Correct. plastic, a polymer. I still don't understand why it's so difficult and why they're so combative in terms of just putting a number on it. Yeah. I, I don't get that. Mm-hmm. And to the point, you know, Anna read the, the verbiage from the, the, the lawsuit. Exactly. That isn't, that has to be intentional. Mm-hmm. It's, oh, not, yeah. it's not hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So that is intentional. And this is something where this bothers me the most, and I've said this before, is they hide behind the Second Amendment. Mm-hmm. in order to justify this type of behavior. And I've said this before as well, too. I am pro-guns. I like having guns. I like shooting them. They're fun. Mm-hmm. But there's no reason that those need to be untraceable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, there's like no reason in the world. That I mean, that is the sole purpose this exists. It has That's to be. That's the only reason. And it is. It's a little bit, I don't know what the right term is, alarming. Or it brought really kind of brought it to uh, to my attention in a greater greater way when I went to Polymer 80's website. Mm-hmm. And you look at the stuff that they have on there, they've got lower receivers for automatic assault rifles. Mm-hmm. So you can go to four different places and get all the parts. And even if you've got a rudimentary understanding of firearms, you can assemble an assault rifle. Yeah, That's a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's a problem. These are the types of, of arms that, just to offer some perspective, these are sniper rifles. These are things that can shoot a bear from 600 yards. Yeah. Who needs that? Yeah. Unless you're going up to Alaska and you need to hunt a bear, you don't need these things. And we certainly don't need them to be available in this this easily. Yeah. And if they are available, at a minimum, because you do have a Second Amendment, right? Put a number <laughs> it on just it. can't like be you said, that hard. Yeah. If, yeah. We can, if we can trace ingredients for orange juice back to the grove that the oranges were right. grown in, mm-hmm. we can do this. And I don't understand why any gun owner would have any concerns about that. I only eat untraceable oranges. Yeah. Wow. Off the grid orange. Okay. Off the grid. Yep, yeah. completely. Gray market oranges mm-hmm. over here. Um, the weapon was built from a Polymer 80 kit called the PF940C, and it calls it uh, an 80% compact pistol frame kit that retails for $160 and is still available on its website. Now, what I thought about was how this presents some danger for manufacturers and machine shops because some of them have the equipment to when you sell a gun that's just uh, missing, you know, uh, missing needs a whole board into it to fire. You know, not a lot of people have those at home. Like, obviously, there are the hobbyists that have this equipment at home. And, you know, you ship them the kit and that's just their entire thing. They uh, whatever uh, bore the hole for you. Yep. But not a big danger. But if some of these manufacturers and machine shops allow their guys to work on their off time, like uh, it well, poses a real risk for those companies as well. Well, I, I, yes, but yeah. anybody, I mean, it's like a car. You can take a car and do anything and add what you want to, to the frame. Yeah. There's only so much you can control with that, but there is a law in terms of whether it's emissions or noise or whatever else, make mm-hmm. sure it's still street legal. So the same thing here, what's different obviously is you can put a gun in your pocket and go anywhere and nobody's going to look for it. The car's driving down the street. Still, the fact that there's just such a resistance to having any type of regulation applied to any of these parts is is just kind of mind blowing. Um, yeah, I just I guess I'm struggling to even get past that. And when you look again at um, um, the, the manufacturer's website, what was the name again? Um, 
shoot. Polymer 80. Polymer 80. A lot of that stuff all of a sudden is not available on their site, too. Yeah. So oh, it's okay. kind of interesting since this has come to fruition. Uh, one of our readers watching us live, Jesse, asks, when you get a blueprint for a 3D printed gun, do you have to register that once built? I think technically, once it's a firearm, it's supposed to be registered, right? It depends on the type of gun. But, oh, okay. How does that work? Well, most pistols, yeah. you know, if it's for, you do need to, if it's concealed, you do need a concealed and carry permit mm -hmm. for that. Some, most rifles and shotguns, you do not. Okay. So it really depends on the type of firearm. Okay. Interesting. Um, yeah, definitely forgot that at the beginning of the show that we are going live. And if you have additional questions, please make sure to drop that in the comment section. So Jesse, thanks for figuring that out on your own. All right. Let's move out to, let's move on to in case you missed it. Uh, some of the stories that, you know, weren't as popular, but might stand to make a big difference in the industry going forward. Um, I wanted to start because we ran a story this week about whether or not people wanted to pretend to live on Mars. And it's a combination of, you know, you know, manufacturing on the red planet, a little bit of 3D printing. It's got everything we wanted. Uh -huh. Yeah. Something for everyone. So on Friday, NASA began taking applications for four people to live for a year in Mars Dune Alpha, a 1,700-square-foot Martian habitat that was 3D printed inside the Johnson Space Center in Houston. The paid volunteers will work a simulated Martian exploration mission complete with spacewalks, limited communications back home, restricted food and resources, and equipment failures. NASA wants to do three of these experiments starting in the next fall. So I immediately went to apply yeah. for this. But they have incredible requirements. Like, A, they want you to have a master's degree in science, engineering, or math. Garbage. They're going to need creative writers on Mars. That's true. I mean, who's going to write the manuals? Um, they also want you to have possibly pilot experience. And that's only, I'm a novice at best. Yeah. Like drone piloting. A novice. <laughs> I got drone piloting experience. Uh, applicants have to be between 30 and 55. Good, but in good physical health. Uh, no dietary issues and not prone to motion sickness, which, you know, every day that gets a little bit worse. How old is Polly Shore? I don't think he's going to make it anymore. <laughs> oh. oh, man. If they could get Polly Shore and the rogue Baldwin to do this, <laughs> I mean, I'm in. I'm in. If he's over 55, oh, I am going to. Reference to an obscure early 90s movie, right? Sorry, yeah. everyone. Oh, Biodome. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, yeah, we got to save the trees. Um, I thought this presented an interesting, uh, an interesting scenario. And a former Canadian astronaut, Chris Hadfield, said, you know, what a great time to watch Netflix, like literally all of Netflix, learn a musical instrument and give you incredible freedom, freedom from a year or a year away from the demands of your normal life. Wait, oh, so Mars has Wi-Fi? Uh, I'm, I'm sure you well actually probably just you would I'm assuming you would just download everything and bring it with you okay you know so like yeah. just and download just, just all plug of Netflix. in yeah. your laptop into the because, Mars electrical grid and then yeah, well, okay and, and yeah. that's why you go to outer space right mm -hmm. yeah. to, to watch, to watch Netflix, Netflix. Yeah. actually of course. What, yeah. what stood out more was you go to Mars to get away from the demands of your normal life and this astronaut astronaut just sounded like a sad person yeah. It's like, what a great way to get away from your family. Yeah, what great is your way. life like if restricted food and resources and equipment failures is what you're running to? Well, I just thought this presents a really interesting situation and possibly a great way to go crazy. Yeah, no, thank you. Yeah, I mean, 
how hardcore is NASA where when somebody starts to lose lose their cool, they're like banging on the windows and they're like, I'm sorry. I know. Uh, you're going to ruin the experiment. <laughs> yep. It's a year. Yeah. It's a hard year. Yeah. You've only been in there like two months, so it's going to get way worse. <laughs> uh, I didn't see how much it paid, but Anna... Any interest in living in a 3D printed dome inside of a NASA center away from your family? What do you think? Jeff, how do you feel about living in <laughs> I think I think my uh, opinion was summed up by Anna's facial expression while you were reading the description. <laughs> yeah. Which just, is uh, just like <laughs> Oh, it gets worse as this you go. This sounds horrible. Yeah, this is the This sounds like a sentencing. This is progress. Oh, yeah, there you go. Send I mean there's send a couple of prisoners up there. Yeah, we run stories all the time on, you know, espionage <laughs> scientists and stuff that are getting caught for, I don't know, I mean, I'm sitting here for a year. I mean, at least if you do this for a year, you've got an easy book deal, perhaps a good blog. I guess. Mm-hmm. There's that. A lot of pros. And yeah. Netflix. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, like, it's so think about it. You got to don't you have to download all of Netflix now and watch it for a year. Mm-hmm. Think about coming out and just seeing like everything that came out in the last year. That's true. And then how but, is that a benefit? Very small one, Jeff. Very oh, small okay, one. Okay. Sorry. Sorry to wet da- blanket that. Yeah, yeah. Dave, Dave was just trying to build it yeah. up. You yeah. Know? yeah. I mean, they only need four. The motion sickness thing, too, is weird because it's like I'm just picturing like a giant bubble. Like, mm-hmm. what are they doing with that thing? Just I mean, oh, Shaking true. it? Yeah. If the entire Tipping it upside down? If it's That's on like a test, simulator. The durability yeah. of this, what do they call it? Dune? Hey, yeah. interns, Dune Alpha. get over here and start kicking this bubble. Mars Dune and, uh, Alpha. I, I do, I do Let's kick it down a hill. I do have a question for you about yeah. this enclosure or whatever. Could you put a rooster on it? Oh, Jeff, you oh. could. If you wanted to protect it from a lightning strike, then yes, you could. Oh, okay. I'd like to thank everybody for joining us today. No, uh, <laughs> <laughs> This is getting out of control. No, uh, well, of course, there you had need a, a rooster on it to prevent Martian lightning from striking your 3D printed Dune. Obviously. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Uh, Anna, is your, in case you missed it, about weather vanes this week? <laughs> Oddly, it is not. Um, Samsung is hoping that cheaper but more durable versions of its foldable phones will mm-hmm. broaden the appeal of a high-concept design that's so far fizzled with consumers. So the company unveiled these foldable phones in 2019. I don't know if anyone remembers these. Mm-hmm. But the idea is that they unfold outward into a tablet, so mm-hmm. you can jump from one format to another. So now I'm not really like on the leading edge of new tech. Um, I like my phone to last until it stops like supporting the updates, and then that's when I know I need a new one. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, why? Like wh- why? I, like so, Samsung's cutting the price. The larger device um, was two thousand dollars. Now Steep. it's going to cost. $1,800. The smaller... Not really slashing prices. Well, I know. Yeah. That's like... I don't know if I would use the word slash. Yeah. The smaller is going to retail for about $1,000. Mm-hmm. So you have to want this. And I think the press coverage that I remember about it was when they sent a bunch of these test <laughs> prototypes to journalists and then they all like cracked and fell apart. Yeah. And then that was widely reported on. And then since then, I just heard that it was really expensive. So... I think that might be a lingering factor. I don't know. Does this product like appeal to you at all? It at first. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Jeff. No, I was just kidding. how much was it initially? Two thousand dollars. Yeah. Now yeah. it's eighteen hundred, Jeff. Though. Oh. So oh. put that two hundred back in your pocket and yeah. spend it on a rooster. And they spread it out with your monthly payments. I'm in. No. Um, I, Wet blanket is not in. Oh. When I saw it, the initial phone that they put out, 
just doubled in size to become a tablet. And I'm like, okay, I already have a large phone in my pocket. Mm -hmm. I don't need it to be twice as thick. Yeah, like when are pockets going to get bigger to accommodate these phones? When Americans get thinner. (laughs) We'll have more (laughs) pocket space. But... I will say that what I liked was they also have a the, the lower cost version is like a traditional phone that just folds in half. So it kind of gives you the old school flip phone like and it's just a little square. I'll also say that they started promoting this very heavily and uh, they make them look cool with an Apple style sort of promotion. Mm-hmm. Um, not enough for me to run out and get one. But the idea of it being smaller in my pocket, I was down with like if I could take my phone now and fold it, I wouldn't mind that footprint necessarily so that's the reason to get it is because you can fold it so it's smaller in your pocket that's not the reason for me to get that no yeah but i that is like the lone benefit i saw (laughs) is i'm like okay don't need anything else but that that would be nice Mm -hmm. yeah the only technology i get nostalgic for is like my handheld electronic football game so when it comes to phones i just want like you want that thing back better oh yeah we could ask tweet tweet at samsung (laughs) yeah (laughs) You might have more luck with this if you bring back the Tyco. I think it was Tyco. I don't actually. Uh, Coleco. Tiger. Remember Coleco? Yeah. yeah. Coleco. Yeah. Um, it's only got four buttons. Yeah. Uh, not rushing out to. Uh, <laughs> Made it easier. <laughs> Made it easier for you. <laughs> buy any foldable phones. Uh, Jeff, what is your in case you missed it this week? So my in case you missed it was a sh- kind of just want to offer a little more recognition to our poor U.S. postal workers. Yeah. These guys. So just to offer a little bit of reference. What? How old were you guys in 1987? Young. I was was 11. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's when they first came out with the vehicles that they're still using. Mm -hmm. Those trucks. Um, In the course of their 34-year lifespan, guess what? They become real difficult to fix. I Mm -hmm. bet. So they finally, after all this time, these trucks were meant to last 24 years. They've been using them for 34. Earlier this year, they said we're going to replace them. They got a contract with Oshkosh. but then these poor postal workers are now dealing with the fact that workhorse truck is holding up the contract because they believe it wasn't fairly awarded mm. to Oshkosh. As a result, before Oshkosh can even, if the contract is upheld, mm-hmm. okay, they still have another six months before they can even start building these trucks for these guys. Mm-hmm. Just to offer a little more perspective, there's been over 150 postal truck fires Whoa. Like they've actually caught on fire. Oh, oh. no. Um, these vehicles get about nine miles to the gallon. Mm. The AC and heating is horrible. I didn't, yeah, so I didn't like, think they had AC. These guys were just looking for a truck to deliver uh-huh. stuff in that won't catch on fire and you know they can get a little break from the weather. Yeah. And that's being upheld now. Now it's bad that it took this long to get some more vehicles out on there, but mm-hmm. Boy, it's kind of, I feel their pain, and I don't know all of the dynamics where Workhorse is saying something was wrong or mistreated in the, the process of awarding this contract, but, man, I just want to get these guys a new truck. Right? Do, you, do you think that, like, Amazon standing up against the, like, Microsoft WorkCloud work um, contract and that getting reversed yeah. is causing, like, other industries to be like, hey, we should try it? Just I mean, it. maybe, because this is, they, they estimate, this is like a $3 billion project mm-hmm. by the time these factories are able to retool and, and everything else. So I just, you know, with Oshkosh having such a history and working with government agencies, particularly the Department of Defense, you would have thought they would have been able to turn something out a little bit quicker for these mm-hmm. guys. Yeah. Um, just let them do their jobs. Yeah, it's un- <laughs> this unfair. This was like postal workers one win of four decades. I know. <laughs> like, like, seriously. Yeah. 
Man, that's rough. So um, hopefully they still get it. Yeah. Uh, did they? Is there a timeline at all as to when it might be resolved? Or? Well, they, it could take up to six months just for the complaint to go through and be processed and addressed. Man. And then you're still dealing with getting things started up at uh, whoever does end up winning the contract. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The one thing I would say is that there's pluses and minuses. Obviously, we can go with one contractor and sort of splitting it up. Mm-hmm. But yeah. It does, like... I hope that at the end of this, they don't uncover that it was nefarious. I mean, uh, but I mean, the same thing, if that comes through, then this is just, you know, uh, a company <laughs> wasting time. Yeah. There's no one wins yeah. at the end of this one. No. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. Uh, we have another comment from Seth, and we'd like to thank Seth for watching us live, who says, I wanted to type, we love you, David, but he sent this. And it is. Oh, it's David with a heart. He just drew a heart around my face. Seth, thanks for hanging out. We're going to send you a t shirt (laughs) because I need your address. I need to keep tabs on where that man lives. Yeah. Uh, Anyway. Do you have any regrets now, Seth? (laughs) (laughs) No, thank you very much for listening. We really do appreciate it. Uh, According to coworker Heidi Lynch, she does say that she's going to wait for lunch. And she promises. So I say we drag this out. <laughs> yeah. All we right. got invited to the barbecue. Yes. We really did. <laughs> right? <laughs> she followed up. Mm, they're already eating. No, uh, thank you very much for waiting for us. We do appreciate it. So let's move on to our final thoughts. Um, Jeff, what was your final thought this week? Well, I was thinking about using this for the in case you missed it, but I was um, – Initially excited, but then ultimately disappointed when we ran the story about Mountain Dew coming out oh. with an alcoholic <laughs> version. Um, you know, I thought that could be interesting, but then there's no caffeine or sugar in it. Oh. So why would you want that? You want to call it Mountain Dew. You then. don't want to go mixing your uppers and downers, Jeff. I mean, they're, yeah. <laughs> I uh, thought you already invented hard Mountain Dew. No, I like what you've been doing. Mountain Dew straight on the rocks. You didn't do. You didn't do the Mountain Dew vodka in college. The voodoo. Oh, that's a thing. Yeah, Mm -hmm. there's another guy put. I don't remember. Was it called Yukon Jack? It was like some sort of weird. I loved Yukon Jack in college. They would put. Guy put that in the Mountain Dew bottle. Yeah, drink that. Yeah, people would occasionally order when I bartended um, Mountain Dew and Jaeger. Oh. That's and a, I was that's like, a throw a splash yeah. of Red Bull in there. No, that's thank you. Lot. I'm not gonna do that mm-hmm. for you. No, um, I'm excited because I'm hoping we get to taste test it. You know, we got a couple feelers out there, and uh, it'll be good to see how many of us could vomit on this new stage. But it's not uh, if it doesn't have caffeine and sugar. How is it gonna taste like Mountain Dew? I I don't know. I've actually I've never tasted Mountain Dew. No, really? No, mm-hmm. I just don't drink soda. I never have though. Yeah, You've yeah. never had soda, any type of. The soda? only soda I've had was I had Seven Up as a child, while sick. That's the only soda. I've and had. that ruined you. Did it? That ruined you for soda for life. Uh, it- no, what ruined soda for life was the terrible taste and smell of it. Did it ruin um, the Prices Right for life? Oh no! But because that's is- what I would do when I was sick. Oh seven yeah, up, Prices Right. Anytime. I mean, that's like one of the great things of like taking a day off is like yeah. just going old school. Like I'm gonna watch the Prices Right. And I'm going to think about how I'm so good at this. I should go on that show. Yeah. I'm going to mm-hmm. try to create some context around this soap opera and see if I can figure out what's going on here with all these relationships. Um, I was more of a pyramid fan. What was that, like the oh, $25,000 pyramid? Yeah. yeah. I love that one. Oh, yeah. Uh, Anna, what's your final thought this week? My final thought is we got to get out of here so we can go to the barbecue. <laughs> Very good. Um, my final thought this week was, uh, so I had a universal policy 
where I don't go to school reunions. And it like had it has uh it has worked really well for me. And I actually went to one this week or uh last weekend and enjoyed the hell out of it. it was, oh, you did? Yeah, it was uh you know, I was a little skeptical because I'm like, I haven't talked to any of these people for twenty years. Don't see a reason now. But we just went. Everybody's pretty much the same. We're all heavier and balder. But it was uh it was a lot of fun. So I would encourage it because it wasn't a great turnout. It was like probably less than 10% of our class. Mm -hmm. But it's like, hey, uh, let's mix booze and memories. I do that every weekend anyways. So, <laughs> booze and memories. Yeah. Sounds like the name of your boat. <laughs> That'll be my memoir. Um, <laughs> booze and memories by David Manti. The audiobook is going to crush. <laughs> Just like, the book was only 150 pages, but he goes on for 40 hours. He cried a bunch of times. <laughs> um, and while we're talking like nostalgia, <laughs> the Field of Dreams game yesterday was amazing that was cool and i won't hear anything else and when it comes to innovation did you hear on the broadcast how all the corn was wiped out by a storm two days earlier it was a storm that came and had us all in our basements um so did they put like faux corn up no they bought like steel rods and fiberglass and went and individually no. fixed every stock of corn oh yeah and that is Incredible. Was Ray, it was, pretty beautiful. Cool. was Ray Liotta there? I didn't watch it. Ray Liotta not only wasn't there, but apparently has never watched the movie. So, Shut up. Yeah. Get out of here, uh, Ray Liotta. I have a couple of memories from the set, but I've never seen it because I didn't want to cry at a classic. No, <laughs> um, but uh, I just thought that was an interesting story of like innovation that had to be done in two days. There is nothing. I mean, I, seeing a home run hit into a cornfield, it's incredible. The first time I'm just <laughs> like, it's going. Oh, it's in the corn. And I just wish, like, kids it's such were a short field, isn't it? Like, couldn't you hit a home run? Like, yeah, it wasn't. Okay. Like, it was 400 to center. So but it's a little bit shorter. You but hit, it, hit a few, oh, normally would be a can of corn. There now was, goes yeah, into the corn. No, no, there was no a, didn't no. work. There was no. only one of those that uh, you're just like, that's definitely a fly out. <laughs> but there were a couple that just. Well, it wasn't like a softball score. It was like nine to seven or something, wasn't it? Was yeah, it was nine, nine to eight. Bottom of the ninth, walk off home run yeah. by the White Sox. Just. I mean, it was wow. beautiful. I mean, Kevin Costner was there too. And wow. I just, I mean, you saw me at his bar. I just can't get enough Kevin <laughs> Costner. So I was just like, more segments of this man. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, I hope they do it again. And uh, the video guys want us to wrap it up because. Should we talk about our favorite baseball they're movie? Giving they're us hungry. This thing. Yeah. They're, stop. Um, all right, so we're going to get out of here this week. Thank you very much for everyone that gave us a couple of questions and watching us live. We really do appreciate the support. Uh, before we leave, please make sure to like, subscribe, and share the podcast. To email the podcast, you can reach any of us at Jeff, Anna, or David at IEN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. We really do appreciate the positive support. Also, you can subscribe to our daily and weekly newsletters. Make sure you get the podcast delivered right to your inbox. All right, for Jeff and Anna, I'm David Manti. This is the Today in Manufacturing podcast. We'll see you next week. Let's get to that barbecue. <laughs>